Hello and welcome to the Divine Renovation Podcast. My name's Dan O'Rourke and we have an amazing guest joining us today. We've got our very own bishop. Archbishop Mancini is going to be coming to talk to us a little bit about what it's like to help a, a, a diocese go on mission. So many of our podcasts are about how, to, how parishes go on mission, but today we get to talk a little bit about what it's like to be a bishop on a diocese that's embracing that same mission with great intentionality. I've got two great co-hosts in studio today and for the first time ever making her podcast debut, I've got Stephanie Potter. Hello, Stephanie. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me in. It is so great to, to, to be with you today. Now, Steph, uh, you work with CMDS, which yeah. uh, is three or four letters that stand for something. What, what does that stand for? Uh, we're the Christian Medical and Dental Society of Canada. And of course, I know you because you're a parishioner and have a longtime parishioner at St. Benedict Parish. I also have the former pastor of St. Benedict Parish along with me, uh, Father James Mallins. Good to see you. How are you doing, buddy? It's good to be back, Dan. Oh, it's, it's, it's <laughs> good to be and back. I have to say, it's going to be really strange for me this morning because... You know, Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You either love one or hate the other. And I'm, today I'm going to have on my left is going to be my one of my bosses. And on my right is my other boss. So, but we haven't quite figured out, are you my boss or am I your boss? Look, I don't you know, know. Anyway. as chair, you're able to fire me. And as executive director, I'm able to fire you. It's a wonderful relationship we've got. It's whoever pulls the trigger first wins. Uh, so look, there's been so many things uh, going on around our diocese as there is every week. But before we talk about that, Steph, I'd just love to, to explore a little bit. Help me understand what it is you do for a living. Oh, uh, I'm the communications manager for CMDS, um, which is a lot easier to say than the full name. Uh, so basically a lot of what I do is uh, produce content for CMDS, but I also, I, I kind of moonlight as a paralegal without any training. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you got, okay, you got to help me understand that. What is CMDS up to? Like, wh wh why do you exist why as, do I as exist? an organization? Well, we're actually heading up on our 50th anniversary, which is really exciting. It's a member organization that's part of an international group of fellowship groups around the world. So we're just the Canadian version of it. So doctors meet locally and have fellowship. We do annual conferences. But more recently, we've been getting into advocacy, which has been really exciting. Um, advocacy about what? Well, in the past, we did advocacy on abortion, and then we did, um, with the legalization or decriminalization of assisted suicide, we've been advocating against that. And more recently, for conscience rights for doctors who don't want to perform so there's places in Canada where they want doctors to have to be involved either directly or being complicit in the act. So that's a lot of what we're doing. We've got some court cases on the go and things like that. And I get to just offer all the support to our legal team and to my boss, our executive director in that area, while also just keeping things sort of light and fun for the members. And the executive director is a deacon from our he diocese, is, isn't he's, it? Yeah, Deacon Larry Worthen. Shout out to my boss. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's wonderful. He's a deacon at one of our local parishes, which was, it's a wonderful active parish. And then he gives the rest of his time and then some to us at CMDS. I just love that there's an organization like yours out there because mm. it, it, it's, it sort of lives in the shadows, if you will. Like it's not a a pressing notion for, for, for us mm. who are of, like of Catholic faith, but it's actually really essential. I, I think as well, because we often focus uh, in, in our ministry here on the internal workings of a parish. But if you think about it, for what does it ultimately mean for a parish to be missionary? Mm. It's not just about parish structure or leadership or programs. I mean, the ultimate way that a parish will be missionary is when the parishioners mm -hmm. take on the identity of being missionary out in the world. I mean, the proper vocation of the baptized is not to get involved in church ministry. That's often necessary and good, but it's to be missionary disciples out there in the world. And today mm -hmm. it's, it's very, very difficult to be a Christian in the world when mm -hmm. people equate religious freedom to freedom of worship. Mm. Like we'll, right. we'll, we'll tolerate that. 
but don't try to bring your values and your convictions into your profession. Exactly. And even in Canada, there's no talk if, that if, if you're an, a, a lawyer or a doctor or, or a nurse or anything, that if you don't sign on to, you know, the going mm-hmm. orthodoxy, then you, you, will, you will be fired. You could risk losing your job. And as we become more secular, that's, that's more of an issue. And I would say mm-hmm. that it's, it's, it's providential that you're here with us today oh. because, I mean, if, if, if through God's grace we can get our ministry right and we help parishes to be missionary, it's going to cause more work for you guys. Which we love. And honestly, I, you know, I've been a parishioner at St. Benedict for going on 10 years, and I was part of one of the founding parishes before that, I apply a lot of what I learn from the DR model in my work in in the ways that I engage, in the ways that we encourage our local chapters, which are little mini parachurch organizations. So it's really wonderful. So as you guys keep growing uh, Christians who are dedicated to the mission, they come to us as Christian doctors, and we get to mission them out into different things. We're noticing, too, that our mission field right now is Canada, so it's so wonderful to see so many good Christians being raised up uh, across Canada through ministries like DR. Excellent. So, Father James, you uh, you hung out with a bunch of your priest buddies, didn't you? Yeah. Well, Thursday, what was that like? Shuffleboard? Last Thursday, we, we had a very important meeting with the clergy, with priests and deacons and a few lay leaders as we, again, in one sense, we had the final consultation phase of this whole planning process we've been going through. We're going to hear about it today from from the bishop. But it was a very key meeting because after consulting in many, many ways, we've basically pre- we, we presented the final plan around the reorganization of our diocese, the groupings of the parishes, what the leadership structure is that we're going to be aiming for, and even some conversation around the terminology, hmm. which is, again, it's ongoing because as we do this, what always strikes me is we're, we're constantly learning. And even coming out of that meeting, we made a few extra tweaks. But I have to say that at the end of the day, uh, you know, there was it was a bit of, you know, like anything, you know, some concerns raised and, and some people who are maybe a bit afraid or worried because when you change something, you're always going to have that. But I left there with an overwhelming sense that the, 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 the guys, the, the, the priests and the deacons have a deep conviction that this has to happen. And mm-hmm. for the most part, uh, unless my reading of it was totally off base, there was a sense of hope, a real, mm. really strong sense of hope, which is really quite extraordinary if you're talking about, in many ways, letting go of what is familiar, what we've, what the way we do things that we've known, which which we also know is is not working, it's not bearing the fruit that 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 it ought to, and it's coming at quite a cost. And and even though we're ready to step into the unknown, into 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 what lies ahead, there was there was a deep sense of hope. So that was that was very encouraging. I, I feel like I've got a bunch of questions I want to ask you, but I'm going to hold them in. I'm going to hold them in because I know Archbishop, Archbishop Mancini is going to be joining us, and perhaps I'll I'll unleash them then, just so I could see the two of you play together. Because I, you know, you you both have must have an, both a perspective of what happened, and and also just an understanding of, of 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 the importance of it. So I'm going to hold back and let me ask you a question about something completely unrelated, and that's about our understanding of of, of rural ministry. Because uh, the, we work with parishes, we coach uh, parishes that are, are rural, and it's, it is frankly, it is different than if you're an urban or a suburban parish. And, and I understand that you were you were visiting one of our rural regions. What, what were you doing? Well, Nova Scotia's got a lot of ruralness to it. Yeah, so I was filling in, uh, you know, filling in in a parish where the the, the, the priest is off right now, and and it was also an opportunity to go there and to touch base, and in many ways to be reminded about that dimension of, of, of parish ministry within our diocese. And this particular region that I went to is a two-hour drive away from Halifax. It's one entire county, which 
is made up of, it's actually seven different parishes, some of them really, really small, but it's mm. been functioning as one. And they've come up with a, a way to do this. Like the main town, the biggest town, they have two masses, and then they cycle through the other places and they don't have mass every single week. So, but what was curious to me is when I was in my late teens, I used to go and visit the priest out in one of these places. And another town is where I, I spent the summer as a deacon. And another one of these towns, I spent the summer in prison. <laughs> As a chaplain, <laughs> as, a, as a chaplain. And, and so I'm familiar with this, with, with, with this area. And it was just a chance to go up there and experience that reality, mm. uh, the, the, the good and the bad, and, and also hopefully to speak a message of hope to the people there. Because as for the priest, there's a, cert, a sense of uncertainty for the people as well. And it's like any time I go anywhere, I'm always struck by, by, by two very important things. Number one, we have amazing people. Mm. Like our parishes are filled with amazing people and incredible potential. I'll just say very, very quickly, the first Mass was in a town. It's, it's a town with an amazing history, Nova Scotia. It's actually very well known as being one of the, uh, the sites in the world most famous for fossils, for very old yeah. old fo- fossils. And I'm not talking about the parishioners, uh, actual, <laughs> actual, actual uh, fossils. But this town was a, was a boom town in the, in the mm-hmm. 1920s, and they built a really big church. And so they still have the really big church. And when I got there for Mass, there were 30 people mm. and three under the age of, of, of 17. In one sense, my heart sank. Mm. But when we gathered people together, we got everyone to come and sit, sit up front, and I moved the chair down. It was one of the most beautiful celebrations of the Eucharist I've ever had. It was incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. And it's like, even here where you might humanly say, ah, oh, there's nothing here, nothing here. Christian community and openness to the Holy Spirit is potent. It doesn't matter whether you're dealing mm-hmm. with teenagers or you're dealing with seniors. There's potential everywhere. And I, I really I had to check my spirit when I first got there and, and kind of repent in a sense of, of because of the richness that I experienced. Um, the next morning, at 8 o'clock in the morning, I left to drive 40 minutes to, uh, along the shore. The small church, 60 people get gathered. And after Mass, more than half of them went downstairs for a meal together. And again, I was struck, in spite of the limitations, the incredible potential. So what, what are we aiming for in these areas is a parish, that, although it's one parish canonically, it will be a, a community of communities. And you saw it. Each of these communities have their own uh, identity, uh, and and their own uniqueness, and the question is, we're not trying to do away with that. We're trying to say that how do you? What does it mean for us to to, to be church in this new reality? And I did speak to the people just very quickly. If I can say this, the heart of my my message to them all was, if we're going to you know prepare the way of the Lord and fulfill our our vocation as a church, then I spoke about three conversions. And I once heard this from a, a Baptist minister called Andrew McRae. He was a, he was mm-hmm. from Scotland. And, I heard this 20 years ago, and I've never forgotten it. He talked about the three conversions necessary for the Christian life. And you've probably heard this, Stephanie, because I use this often. But the conversion to Christ, the conversion to Christ's church, and the conversion to Christ's cause. Mm. Like, all three are necessary. Like, it starts with a conversion to Jesus, to know him personally, to be in love with him, uh, to be in deep intimacy with him. Because outside of that, everything else is just a burden. It's just the demand. Then conversion to the church, that doesn't just mean you should go to Mass. It means church experience this community, not as an anonymous kind of thing. And then the, but the third conversion is so key, conversion to Christ's cause. Mm. Like that's the point. Yeah. Like there's a mission and, and I'm a part of that. I, I'm, I'm called to have a conversion to actually own the mission. And if those three conversions can happen, 
doesn't matter if you're a group of 30 people who are mature in years, the Lord can mm-hmm. still use you in a powerful way to right. minister to the people in your area. So that was kind of a message that, that, that I gave. And I came away from that experience actually with a, with hope, a real sense mm-hmm. of hope. It really was a I love a blessing. that because so many of mm-hmm. our parishes are rural. And, and I don't just mean in our own diocese. I mm-hmm. mean, globally, so many parishes are, are rural. And so I think, you know, even just being able to speak that message of hope and, and recognizing what's possible, the potential within those, that, that brings me, that heartens my heart as someone who doesn't spend a lot of time in rural areas. Yeah, and it speaks to my understanding is that missionary disciples, you know, you can't you can't say that that has to just be the city mouse. It has to be the country mouse too. Um, I spent every summer in rural Nova Scotia in in a small town that only had a Baptist church, but they understood what it was to be a missionary disciple too. Um, they were out in the community. They were spreading Christ. They were inviting people to church. They were doing ministries outside of their parish and. You know, that that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to remind everyone that all of us are called to that. All of us are called to be missionary disciples. Well, I think of uh, Father Kazito, who's a priest in the Omaha Archdiocese, and he has mm-hmm. two churches in rural Omaha. Total weekend attendance combined of 150 people. His mm-hmm. Alpha has 80 people going to it. And the population of his town is only 500 people. So he's got like, I don't know, 15, 20% of the town's population. Talk about proportional impact. It's, That's it's right. huge. That's right. Last night I was on a, a coaching session with one of our pastor cohorts and another priest from, from Omaha as well. They're going through a restructuring and he's now going to be the pastor with two associate priests with a total of seven locations mm-hmm. uh, and either side of them about a 45 minute drive in each in each direction so very similar to what we're experiencing in the mm-hmm. in the in the rural area and in fact that many places are experiencing and just as we signed off last night I, I said to him I said Bernie I look forward to to learning from you mm-hmm. and and hearing what you have to say and and maybe sharing some of the learnings we, we experience here in Nova Scotia with you as well. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. So we are in the midst of restructure and we have a leader guiding us through that restructure. So I'm going to pause right now so we can actually take a moment to actually bring out Archbishop Mancini. So we will be right back with our Archbishop. Welcome back. And it's a particular pleasure today to be able to invite her to welcome our, our very own Archbishop into the studio. So welcome, Archbishop. It's good to see you. Glad to be here for this first experience. <laughs> <laughs> so I understand that you're not a podcast regular, that you don't have a whole bunch of other podcasts that we were that we're competing with. That you're, that we're I have to confess that I don't even know what a podcast <laughs> is. But anyway, here I am, you know. <laughs> well, your new, your new thousands of podcast-adoring fans are grateful that you could be present for us t- today. And, and, you know, you, you, you've been, um, or, well, let, before, let's, let's get some context. Let's understand you. How long have you been Archbishop here in, in, in Halifax, Yarmouth? I've been here 11 years. So 11 years 11 you've years. been leading this, this archdiocese, and it's been, um, it's been an interesting 11 years, hasn't it? Yes, it has, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. And, uh, and so we've, we've seen lots of changes uh, uh, in that time, uh, and I think there's been, you know, there's been lots of great stuff, and of course there's oft, often been challenges as well. And I think you've had to, you know, you've grown in, in, in your leadership during that time, I imagine, yeah. as well. Would you say that's fair? Yes, it is. It's been, uh, it's been quite a journey uh, during these 11 years, uh, I've had some highs and some lows, and uh, you know that's the way I guess uh, life uh, is. And I've had to try to figure out how to get 
how to move on through all of this. Yeah. It's well, let been me ask you a fun. question about leadership in general, if I could. Uh, you, you were our first um, bishop to, to be on this podcast. We had a long line of them that applied to be on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, in all seriousness, I'm someone sure. asked me the other day if we ever had another, uh, a bishop on. I said, I've, I've never, I don't know. And uh, as, as I was rolling through my head, I'm like, no, I don't think we have. But how appropriate, though, that you are, are the very first bishop that we have on this podcast. It, it, it's, you know, this is our diocese. You are our bishop. And so to have you as our first feels feels really good to me. Uh, but let me ask you a question about leadership. Um, how, how was the transition in leadership different from when you were a pastor versus when you were a bishop? What was that, what was that transition like, and how was it different? Well, what I, uh, what I learned about being a priest and being uh, preoccupied with the ministry of looking after people in a parish, uh, that happened a long time ago. Mm. And uh, what that was and what it has become now as a bishop, it's, it's night and day, night and day. Uh, leadership, when I was first ordained as a priest, I don't think we ever even used the word. Mm-hmm. You know, you were ordained to be a priest. You were ordained to be eventually the pastor. And... Um, Ministry meant uh, moving into a parish and picking up the ball from whoever it was that you were replacing and carrying on, hopefully in exactly the same way. And, uh, uh, and, and maybe the most difficult piece of, uh, uh, of experience was to deal with those who said, well, you know, Father, uh, so-and-so did it this way. Why aren't you doing it in the same fashion? Uh, so that was the kind of understanding of ministry in a sense. It's, 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 it's obviously a lot more to it than that. But there was a sense in which you were part of a system and a culture, and you were basically maintaining uh, the operation. Uh, then something happened. Uh, the world changed, and everything around changed. And suddenly what you were doing and what I was doing uh, didn't seem to fit anymore. It didn't make much sense. Um, and so there was a desire to adjust and to adapt, and we tried in different ways to tweak things but I always felt fundamentally that we were not on target, that we were missing something in this attempt to change. Of course, I was ordained in 1970. It was right after the council. So there was a lot of enthusiasm after Vatican II to make things different. But what it was back then, the difference back then focused on externals. It focused on things like rearranging the pews in the church. And I remember I was oh, in one yeah. church yeah. where the previous pastor, his big, uh, his big shift was uh, changing the pews from, you know, kind of the traditional direction of uh, looking forward. Uh, he decided that the radical shift was to put the church sort of on the side and try to come up with a semicircle in a rectangle, which didn't make a lot of sense, <laughs> and put the altar somehow over here under a stained glass window uh, and, and kept the altar 
uh, that was uh, in, you know, in stone, uh, in, in, made of marble. You couldn't move it, so it was always over there. So suddenly you didn't know quite where to turn, right? Um, and then the next priest would come in and change it all back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, that happened. <laughs> that happened. Uh, but, but you, so the, the point of that, uh, you know, uh, example is that we were simply uh, dealing with some external things. Somehow Vatican II got reduced mm. to yes. uh, some mm. external rearrangements. But something was happening. Uh, we knew that, uh, that we were no longer reaching people and uh, something had to be done that was very different. Bishop, you know, you've, many of our listeners may not realize it, but you were uh, born in Italy. You arrived in Canada as a little boy in a town called Halifax uh, and got on the train and went to Montreal. You grew up in Montreal. And in those years where you were in the, the seminary when you, when you were a young priest, like to, you know, we basically talk about the end of Christendom. In the, in the English-speaking world, but in many ways, Quebec went through this incredible shift, which many historians refer to as the Quiet Revolution, where over a, a pretty short period of time, Quebec went from being almost considered to be the most Catholic place on earth to uh, kind of the opposite. Tell us a little bit about that, and when you felt that oh. shift in yeah, your bones. Yeah, like, you yeah. talk about waking up, like, I think you probably felt it earlier than, than most other people in the church. Well, I grew up, as you say, in an environment which could not have been more uh, Catholic in its externals. Uh, there was a story that I heard, and whether it's true or not, I have no idea, but there was some, after World War II, uh, there was some preoccupation about what would happen in a world where the city of Rome would be blown up. Where would the Pope go and live? <laughs> and the story was... To Quebec, because that was the most Catholic place on earth. You know, uh, you go now. Quebec is the most secular place in Canada, and probably one of the most secularized uh, environments in the world. Somewhere in the '60s, the church that had been fell apart, and I grew up in that. The church that I grew up in, yes, helped me to become a priest. But I was no longer going to be a priest in a church uh, that I had grown up in. Mm -hmm. And so I knew from the very early on that whatever it meant to be a priest would have to be different. Mm -hmm. Later on, when I was studying and doing my doctorate at the University of Montreal, which again was, is one of the most secularized universities in the world, Somebody made the comment, he says, I don't understand how you can be where you are because you're a marginalized person and you suddenly find yourself in the midst of the church. How did you get from the margins to becoming a, you know, part of the uh, local church hierarchy? And, and frankly, uh, I don't know how that happened. I think it happened because things had changed so much that it uh, no longer was unheard of or it was acceptable to maybe find someone who has different ideas and different visions to be at the center of things. So I found myself struggling from early on with the idea that to be a priest in the church of the 40s and 50s 
had to somehow change. That led me to uh, become involved with something that was uh, popular in different parts of the world uh, in the 70s. It was something called Ministry to Priests. That was one of the, I spent about 12, 13 years working on providing or at least attempting to provide uh, pastoral care for priests. But even there, while we knew we had to do something for priests, because many were leaving, many were struggling with their ministry, and we were trying to tweak the experience of priesthood by providing what we could at the time with this approach. It was a great experience. It took me all over the world. I went to Australia to set this thing up. I went off once to the Philippines. I, you know, it was a wonderful experience from that point of view. But when I look back on it now, we were dealing with the symptoms. Mm. Ah. We were dealing with the symptoms and not with the reality of what a priest needed to experience. And so leadership, if I go back to your question, it was evolving in my understanding. And suddenly I'm a bishop. And I was made an auxiliary bishop in Montreal. And um, in that role of auxiliary bishop, now my background is teaching, my background is psychology, uh, counseling, and suddenly I'm the vicar general in charge of administration. And there again, I'm saying, what am I doing here? I went to Rome after the, um, the synod that dealt with uh, the ministry of bishops. And I went there with my boss, uh, the cardinal of the day, Cardinal Jean-Claude Turcotte. And uh, Pope, uh, Pope uh, John Paul II gave us uh, a, a special copy of the exhortation of the ministry of bishops, which was to provide hope. And so I'm reading this thing while we're in Rome, and my uh, boss uh, keeps asking me, so uh, what's in the book? You know, because he hadn't read it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I kept reading it, and finally one day I said, I'm finished. Says, what's the first thing that struck you about this uh, exhortation of the ministry of bishops? I says, well, the first thing that strikes me is that the Pope says that a bishop should not be an administrator. Hmm. And says, here I am, you're auxiliary, you've made me vicar general, I'm responsible for administration. You're asking me to do something that I shouldn't be doing as a bishop. <laughs> and he says, well, I don't care what the Pope says, you're still going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. But again, the shifting, right? Yeah. And so after, what, seven, eight years as uh, auxiliary in Montreal, I wasn't expecting to be going anywhere, uh, because in Montreal, if you were made an auxiliary, you stayed an auxiliary. Okay. That was a tradition. Mm -hmm. That was a tradition. But suddenly I get this call, and uh, the nuncio asks him, says, would you go to Halifax? Hey, that sounds interesting. Sure, I'll go to Halifax. It was a lot longer than that, but anyway, the answer was pretty. It was pretty short. Yeah. And so here I am, suddenly in Halifax, and suddenly my world is turned completely around. 
Because you've ta- I've heard you talk about this before. You talk about the difference between a bishop and yep. being the bishop. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, and, and that's and that's where, where where I was going. So just can you help me understand uh, just those tail ends? So you were for years as the auxiliary in, in, in Montreal. Yeah. Did your role change as auxiliary? Like were you still focused on administration that whole time, or or what? what did it evolve, or was it pretty stable? Well, I, uh, it evolved in the sense that I became the the the, the second in command. Right. It was the archbishop. And as vicar general, of course, you have the authority of the bishop mm-hmm. uh, across the diocese. It was focused initially on administration, but then when another uh, bishop fell sick, I ended up being responsible mm-hmm. for not only administration and finances, but I ended up being responsible for the whole, the whole operation right. in Montreal. And I, I was in that role for a number of years. And I have to say that my, the cardinal, uh, the Archbishop of Montreal, was the most surprised when, uh, when the nuncio told him <laughs> that I was going to be moving to Halifax. Hmm. He came to see me the next day. He says, why? Why would you want to go to a place like that? <laughs> <laughs> I just got you trained up the way I wanted you. <laughs> well, there's an element of truth in that. And, he, and his, in his mind, I guess he thought I would probably succeed him. Mm. Okay? But that didn't work. That, that's not what happened. And when I was asked if I would go, I remember telling the nuncio, he says, mm. if I'm asked, I will go. And, uh, uh, you know, when we sang earlier, here I am, Lord, I, uh, you know, I'm to do your will. Uh, that was what was going on in my mind when we were praying earlier. Yeah, and I accepted. And I accepted not quite knowing where I was going and what would happen. But within, within days of my arrival, I came to the realization that of, of the tremendous shift that had occurred from being, as you said, James, a bishop being the bishop. And what surfaced that uh, reflection was preparing my first homily for the Chrism Mass. Because when we were preparing uh, to celebrate the Chrism Mass, and the Chrism Mass, for those who know, is the occasion when it's a really, it's a great celebration of the church. Uh, Lay people, deacons, lay ministers, priests, we all get together. But that's where the uh, priests and deacons renew their commitment to the bishop. And as I was preparing for that homily, it occurred to me that every year up to that particular point, I had always renewed my promises of fidelity and obedience and service and all of those things someone else. And now I was standing there and I was the one that was receiving that same commitment or renewal of commitment from the clergy. What a tremendous responsibility to be entrusted with all of that. And I also had another strange feeling when I realized it. And that was And to whom do I now renew my promise of service and commitment and 
everything else. And that's when it clicked that I was the bishop mm. because my commitment was to those people who were sitting in the cathedral and who represented everybody else that made up the church here. So the role of leadership now became a relationship with a group, with a people. Mm. And it's when the symbolism of receiving a ring became reality. You're married. I am. You're wearing a ring. And that was given to you when you made your vows mm -hmm. uh, to your husband, and it was the fidelity to each other in love that that ring displays. That's right. And suddenly, this ring became that same symbol for me. So leadership was no longer me being the boss, yeah. maintaining a system, making sure that everything is in place and that we have enough money to make sure that everybody gets paid. But it's a relationship to people where the relationship becomes one, uh, a personal one, uh, and, a, and a relationship of care and love. And I remember not much later from that first moment, that first chrism mass, someone asked me, uh, how I was doing here in Halifax. And I remember saying, uh, it feels like I've fallen in love again. <laughs> because for a while, whatever the love was, had disappeared. Mm. Or it had diminished to the point that it was no longer uh, hot or warm, or anything, mm. it had almost turned cold. Mm. But the relationship, and I think the leadership in, in this instance, was that kind of relationship. And so caring for people, uh, holding them in your heart, as we mm -hmm. sang, mm -hmm. uh, became a reality. And it's out of that concern, and out of that experience, that restructuring mm. becomes not just rearranging the furniture or the, deck, the chairs on the Titanic. It's about <laughs> re, reforming ourselves so that we could become who we truly are and we are truly ourselves when we are caring for one another in a loving fashion. And when that's the case, then that love generates love, and you mm. go out, mm. and you need to go out. We're not there to self-preserve. You know, it's funny, this reminded me of, uh, it's a quote, your mentioning of marriage made me think of it. There's a famous quote by St. John Chrysostom. Uh, it was advice he gave to married couples, which was that um, basically you should say to each other, my job is to act in such a way and to help you in such a way that we get each other to heaven, that we meet uh, to the, and go to the feast prepared to us, that we have a painting of it on our wall, my husband and I. And, and as a bishop, there's that part, you know, you're, you know, your job is to help all of us get to the kingdom and it is more than rearranging furniture. It's about 
helping us uh, live out our mission, giving us the support we need and us giving you the support you need so that when we get to the kingdom together, the Archdiocese of Halifax goes together with our bishop. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a journey. It's mm-hmm. a journey of uh, people who care for one another enough mm-hmm. that they're willing to do all that's necessary to make I, things I find, happen. I find mm-hmm. the, uh, so much of what you shared was, was, was profound in the sense that you're able to, to tie together sort of a really an interesting moment in, in, in history, in the history of, of, of both of your ministries. I'm pointing at, mm-hmm. <laughs> at you, Father James, and you, Archbishop, uh, because you would have both been present at, at, at that, that exchange when you became the, sort of, when you were the mm-hmm. bishop, you would have been still, you know, you would have been there, right, Father James? I was at that Chrism Mass, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And so, so like, that, that, that's an interesting moment in our own history. And of course, what's, what's, what's preceded from that is 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 this restructure that you made mention of and and you know, the notion that it's not about it's not about rearranging pews it's about something mm-hmm. much more important uh, how like i mean no one could have foreseen exactly where you would have ended up as a diocese uh you know at, at that time but how would in both of you i'm asking this to, to both of you how would how does it match in terms of what your expectations might have been then and to what our reality is now I think for, for a lot of my ministry in the early years, it was like what, what, what the bishop said is I was dealing with symptoms and, and it mm. took me many years before I realized that we've got to go d- deeper. When I was first ordained, mm. I was part of the John Paul II generation and my conviction, and it really was a strong conviction that we needed two things to see the church become what, what she could and should be. That was holiness and orthodoxy. And I was going to lead the way on this. That was, <laughs> was the thing. And, and, uh, uh, after many years, I found out I'm not really that holy. Um, uh, and, uh, and also, well, orthodoxy is good. It's a, it, it's a value, but I found in parish ministry, it's not the game changer. It impacted the same eight to 10% of people and all the other people who went home at the end of mass, not really caring that much, mm-hmm. still continue to go home and not, not caring that much. So there was a, there was a whole shift for me that led to the conviction that we it, we've got to begin really with evangelization, and then in doing that, experiencing all the obstacles that come your way, that evangelization bursts, opens up to you the awareness for the lead that they need to lead, because mm-hmm. dealing with pushback and and what you do next, and and then it being revealed that what what's what is an obstacle to really mobilizing is the structure that we've inherited. So over the years, it took me a long time to kind of chisel through the different levels to get down to what I think is the, is the core issue. I, I think I was a lot slower in the realization than the bishop was back in the 70s. Well, I don't know that you were slower, but I, uh, I've been around longer. So. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, to, to, to pick up on what you, you said in terms of your own struggle, I mentioned that I was sensing all along that there was something missing, something that wasn't quite right. And when I first came to Halifax, I went around and I visited all the priests. First thing I did, visited all the priests individually. I went to where they worked and in their parishes. And and I went around and did confirmations the first time around. And everywhere I went, I sensed that there was something missing, something needed to be done, and I was struggling with it and not being able to articulate it very well for myself. But uh, in my efforts, uh, when I first came, I organized a trip to Rome for a number of our priests, those who wanted to join me. So we went on a little pilgrimage uh, together. We had about 10 or 12 guys that came with me. And um, 
And that was, that was great. It was a, an attempt to form fraternity and a sense of belonging and so forth. And, and we did. And the guys went home. And I stayed back in Rome because I, I was expecting my brother and my sister to come and visit. And we were going to take a few days after the, the guys went home. So I had this weekend in Rome by myself. And I was living at the Casa del Clero in Rome. And across the street from the Casa del Clero, there is this church of St. Augustine. And it was built in 1492. Okay, a significant date, right? And so uh, here I am by myself, and it's Sunday morning, and being a good Catholic, uh, it's time for me to go to church. So I went to church, and I went to that church. And it was an 8 o'clock mass. And I went because I was on vacation. I was wearing, uh, you know, regular clothes. I wasn't dressed as a bishop. I wasn't dressed as a priest. And I sat as a good Catholic in the last pew. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And suddenly this elderly man, priest, came out. Now, that morning at 8 o'clock in this very old church, we were about 12 people. And this old man came out to celebrate Mass. And the first thing he did was he invited the 12 people to come forward. You know what happened? Nobody moved, including me. Including you. (laughs) (laughs) And so he went on with Mass, and then comes the homily. And that's where I made the connection with new evangelization. Because that old man, in his homily, made, connected the dots for me. All the stuff that I was struggling with, all the things that were, make, were not making sense, and I was trying to figure out what is it that we got to do. It's when that old guy started to talk about the need for a new evangelization. And he did that because that week, the Pope had announced, he says, two interesting bits of news. I guess for Romans, it's important to know what's going on at the Vatican. He said, one of them is he appointed a Canadian cardinal to be responsible for the nomination of bishops. And that's Cardinal Ouellette, who is there in Rome. That's his job. And he says, and for us here in Rome, another thing that uh, occurred is that the Holy Father has named Bishop Rino Fisichella, whom I think you know, James, or you've met him at least, uh, and he's responsible for this new organization that the Pope has put in place to sort of guide and uh, help with called uh, new evangelization. But he says, but what does it mean? this new evangelization. And he looked around this 1492 church. It's got paintings and statues and Caravaggios, and anybody who's an artist would go crazy in that church because it's such a wonderful place. And he says, this is a shell. There's nothing in it except museum pieces. And unless we come up with something that touches the hearts of people, we will be celebrating Mass in an empty church. Mm. 
And when he said that and he made the connection to the need for a personal conversion to Jesus Christ, that was the point where not only did I get the vocabulary, but I sort of got a sense of the vision that has been part of what we've been doing here in this diocese ever since. And it was that which gave rise to the Pentecost letter that I wrote. Yeah, before we, uh, we, we wrote the cameras, we were talking about this process of renewal, and really it's the, what we've been going through recently is the fruit of a, of a, of a long time, and it began, like, like most changes do work for renewal, with, with the casting of a vision. And I remember at the time, it was uh, 2000 and it was 20, what year was it? 2012, I think. 2012. Yeah, and I 11, was actually, 12, somewhere in there. I was over in, in London and you, the, the Pentecost letter came out and I remember being absolutely blown away, being thrilled. I, it was like, a, I can't believe a bishop's actually saying this. I mean, mm-hmm. so what, been, what, what was the Pentecost letter? What was it? Well, it, it was my attempt to put into words, uh, what we needed for our local church. Uh, so it, I, wrote, I wrote it at Pentecost because Pentecost is the, is, the, is the occasion to celebrate the birth of the church. And essentially what I was saying is the church needs to be reborn. It needs to be rebuilt. It needs to be renewed. And, and so in that, I addressed some of the things that, uh, that needed uh, changing. And, and, and the, the spirit that's needed for that change to take place. Uh, it, it's not, again, a restructuring uh, that touches on buildings or touches on finances or touches on... No, it's, it's, a, it's a rebirth of the commitment of individual persons to the person of Jesus Christ so that as the body of Christ renewed and refreshed and rebuilt and all of those good words, uh, we could go forward in, in proclaiming and, uh, the gospel and, and proposing mm. Jesus Christ. What I love? Well, I'll just say this. That I'm as, getting excited as, too. As, You're as, jumping as in. I'm a parish priest at St. Benedict. We were mm. in the middle of our, we were just starting our third year of, of mobilizing and, and tra- trying to change it. At that point, we were starting to get a lot of pushback and, and resistance. So this document provided a lot of great quotes. Mm. I just say, hey, look, this is what the bishop is saying. This is what Pope John Paul II is saying. Oh, sorry, the Pope John Paul II and St. Pope Benedict, but here's a quote from our bishop, and it was, thank you, bishop. It was, it was very, very, very handy to, to, uh, to, to, to show that you know we've we've got the support for what we're doing here. Well, the way I looked at it was that it was kind of nice that Pope Benedict agreed with what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> I gather you sent the letter to him, but here, look, here, here's what, what what came to my mind is I I, have, I actually have no idea what it's like to be a bishop. I've never been one. And, uh, <laughs> but you know, part of what I imagine and based on even just our travels and, and what we do at the divine renovation ministry, there's, there's an element of, of business management. It's that administrative piece you talked about. Right. And when, when these dioceses around the world, they go through this, these restructures, a lot of it's frankly about dollars and cents. We can't afford to heat this many buildings or this many roofs or this many, you know, there, there, there's that element of it. And what I love about what I'm hearing is when you, when you started to think about, okay, what, what are we actually looking to do? What's, what's this restructure? You weren't thinking about, well, 
how many buildings can we keep open? How many roofs can we keep reshingling? You, you started at a different place. And I, to me, and based on even just what, what I've experienced in this ministry in terms of our travels and, and our engagement, with, that's not the natural place that most bishops necessarily lean because they're, they're focused on the business side and not the, the mission side. And what I'm hearing is that letter unleashed the mission side and, and forget about the business side. It's going to work out, but let's, let's, let's lean into the mission side of it. That's right. Uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't looking to restructure. There's a part of me that would have loved to have just let things be. I mean, you know, building stays open, it stays open. Uh, and it will stay open if you have the will and the desire and, and the, the commitment and the money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, if you don't have the money, well, then it's, you'll tell me when it's time to close down. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not trying to do that. Mm-hmm. But, you see, I came from this other place called Quebec where the heart of the church uh, was, was focused on being the official state religion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and when, when the heart went out of it, we ended up with this structure that made no sense. So I come from a different place where what was missing was the personal connection with the person of Jesus Christ. I remember reading, it says, in Quebec, the church controlled people's lives, but it never captured their hearts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what do I need to do to capture the heart? Or how does the Lord capture my heart? Well, he did that when he showed me that if there isn't this personal conversion to Jesus Christ, then the rest of it is just functionalism. Mm -hmm. And I had seen too many priests in my ministry, the priest's experience, who were functionaries of the sacred. Mm. but whose hearts were far from what, it was, what was needed. I was once in Australia, and of course there's, a, not, not, there's no place as interesting as Australia to find out about sheep. Because <laughs> <laughs> the place in some areas is the millions of sheep, right? right? And I was out to one of those dioceses to put in place the, or help at least put in place the ministry to priests. And I remember on that retreat, the experience of priests coming forward and talking and so forth, and and my observing of the priests together. And one of the things that remains with me after all these years is that on that retreat, I didn't know if it was a retreat or if it was an occasion for priests to get together to get drunk. Hmm. Because that was what was happening. And I remember hearing them and sensing their anger and the frustration of what was going on. And saw the bishop, and he asked me how things were going, and I remember telling him, I said, Bishop, your guys are angry. Somehow that has to be dealt with. And the reason for the anger we don't know but the symptom for coping with it is the, is, is the turning to numbing their brain and numbing their senses by this practice of drinking. 
Do you think maybe they were um, grieving the fact that the priesthood looked so much different? You know, I, I um, over the years, I've met a few priests, and some of them said to me that they felt like they had been sold a false bill of goods as to what the priesthood would look like, and then Vatican II happened, or, you know, they got into ministry, and it looked so much different from what the vocations videos and the cards look like. So, you know, they just, they were grieving their idea of the priesthood. I could say the same about marriage. Marriage doesn't look like the movies say, Um but, you know, are we doing, yeah, is that maybe why they were so angry? Possibly. Mm. Uh, coming to terms with the disappointments of mm. their lived experience, mm. living in isolation, mm-hmm. living far away from the centers. I wasn't in a diocese that was, it wasn't Melbourne or it wasn't, you know, Cairns. It was one of those rural dioceses. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so... In Australia, rural means rural. Yeah. You know, uh, when you got uh, when you've got uh, you know ranches mm-hmm. or whatever they call them, where you you oversee the sheep by helicopter. You know, it tells you how how yeah. large these environments are. So, what does a priest do? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so th- there was a lot of stuff there around the nature of priesthood and how that mm-hmm. ministry should be sustained or could be sustained, which was not being sustained. Anyway. Hmm. But I talked to the bishop about it, and I said, you should really provide an opportunity for these guys to at least speak, because they're coping by drinking. Hmm. And he turned to me and he said, well, what do you want me to tell them? I do the same thing. Hmm. So the leadership of a bishop, if your heart is somehow not grasped by what truly is the nature and purpose of Christ's message, which is about reconciliation. It's about atonement. It's about bringing people together and making sure that they are whole, healing. All of those words are interconnected. Well, when that's not there, then you talk about money mm-hmm. and you talk about, you know, buildings and you talk about insurances. Now, if I had to deal with that, yes, I've had my share of having to deal with that. And I said at the very beginning, I had, you know, uh, good days and not so good days. One of the things that I never expected as a bishop was that I would be spending as much time as I did and that I have on the question of the consequences of sexual abuse. That is itself a symptom of a structure and of a system that doesn't make sense. Mm. That's notwithstanding psychological disorders and all of those kinds of things, okay? Yeah, I've had to deal with money. I've had to deal with settlements. I've had to deal with people who have been hurt and trying to make sense of all of that. Some of the bishops didn't know how to deal with any of these things. I didn't know how to deal with any of these things, and I ended up learning on the job. That's part of the problem in terms of what we have as expectations of bishops, is we think that they can magically do all sorts of things. You have the power. You have the authority. You can just tell someone what to do and he'll do it. And I said, you don't know the bishop. You don't know what the reality is. You know, 
Leadership is helping people to go from where they are to where they need to be. And the process of leading that journey, Pope Francis refers to it as the ministry of accompaniment. And in the ministry of accompaniment, the leadership, first leadership skill is the ability to listen. To listen first, dialogue second, make sense, integrate things, and then bring about the healing or the reconciliation or the, 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 the reality that we are hoping for and striving to attain. Mm. So that's how I've come through a whole bunch of different things to where I am right now. I think of uh, what St. Paul says. I can't remember if it's First Timothy or Second Timothy, but there's a quote that says they, they have the form of religion but deny the power that within. Mm-hmm. And that's this constant temptation. It was the biggest critique that Jesus gave of the religious system of his time is you have the external appearance. You know, he attacked the, the Pharisees, you know, uh, scribes and Pharisees, you, you hip, hypocrites, you're like whitewashed sepulchers, all white on the outside, full of corruption within. And, and it's, it, it's a perennial temptation to fixate on the form. I mean, spiritual realities always have some kind of form yeah. because we're incarnate, we're, we're, we're spiritual, we're, we're embodied spirits. Uh, but the temptation is to fixate on the external and, and lose contact with the power. And I think that uh, that's really the, a great way to frame up the, the core struggle of the church today when, when the primary concern comes about maintaining the form, a form mm. that was, uh, it, it's the opposite. That, that's a quick way to lose the power. <laughs> and, uh, and that's a terrible place to be. That's a real trap that, that you can fall into. And so I think in many ways, as, as Pope Francis says, this is not so much an age of change as a change of age, is that we're, we're coming through this, this pivotal moment in, in history through an experience of, of, of decline, of dying, this pain, uh, but there is going to be rebirth. And you know, we will look forward to what the Lord is, is, is going to do. So, so let me ask you this, this question is because both of you, uh, you know, I'm pointing Father James and, and to you, Bishop, um, both of you are, are part of a team that that's like, this is a, a, a diocese that is intentionally embracing mission, right? Like, so there's an element of we're trying to move forward. We're not, we're not in, 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 in a retreat for the sake of retreat. We're not focused on, on like, you know, getting the books balanced and, and, and like, we're, we're focused on like, how do we bring people to Jesus? Mm. And so, so what is it like to be a bishop in, in that environment? What's it like to be a diocesan team trying to make that reality happen? Help me understand what, how is it different and how is it real for you guys? Well, it becomes real every time I have to meet with a priest or with a layperson or answer a letter of complaint or having to deal with a situation that we weren't prepared for uh, and try to convince them of something. See, the, the, the difference is in the manner in which things get done. I cannot, and I've never, as far as I know, consciously done this in this diocese, I cannot force anybody to do anything. And that's been the fundamental distinction or difference uh, around the exercise of, uh, of authority. Authority is not the power to make you do something. Mm. I don't walk around with a big stick so that I can hit you over the head. But rather, the authority 
it comes from having the spirit and the willingness and the struggle to bring about a transformation of thinking in the person who is hearing. So when we are together working the, the territory <laughs> or we're talking to the clergy uh, that we met last Thursday to tell them about the new uh, configuration of parishes, it looks like I've just decreed something. The reality is that that's the end product of about three, four years of deliberate and intentional working the turf, okay? And that meant talking to people, consulting people, throwing out ideas and receiving feedback and incorporating that feedback. It's a long process. But the outcome, hopefully, is an outcome that is shared. Now, if the clergy are not on board with this vision that we're trying to promote, they're going to sabotage the, the work. If the laity are wanting, to, are wanting me to live in 1948, uh, they're not going to get on board. But hopefully, there is a growing number of people who recognize in their own experience that there is a need for something different, something new, something transformative, and hearing the voice that articulates what that possibility of change might be, uh, get on board. And that's when the vision becomes a shared vision. Yeah. And the activity that flows from it is an activity that is born of that vision, not uh, imposed by that vision. And I think that's the difference, maybe, between uh, my attempts to be a bishop in the fashion that I have been, and perhaps which makes me a little bit weird and odd, because I don't invoke uh, power or authority uh, in my efforts. I spend a lot of time talking and a lot of time listening, and sometimes... That's a difficult thing. My, uh, my boss back in Montreal, he used to always say that a bishop gets tired listening, but he rests when he speaks. So today, <laughs> so today's been a restful exercise. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I, I think perhaps this is the, the right note for us to end on because I, 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 I think... Uh, it's been such, it's just such a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to have you as our bishop. And, you know, our diocese, our team at Divine Renovation, we pray for you. We pray for your ministry. We, we're, we're grateful for, for all of your years of, of, of leading us. And I think for, you know, all those who have, have joined us, you know, like you, you've got bishops too. And uh, so I, I hope that perhaps you'll, you'll both uh, appreciate them more for, for their struggles, but also just love them for, for their service. So thank you so much uh, for being with us, Archbishop. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and a good conversation. So all the best to all the work that you're doing and uh, may God bless it. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for, for joining us. And, and seriously, take a few moments perhaps out of your day today and, and to pray just a, a few words for your bishops as, as they, they continue to toil in, in their diocese to do their best to, to make a difference for, for you and the rest of the flock there. And God bless and we look forward to seeing you again next week.